Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talking about the queue or whatever. Okay. An informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show. Hi, Paul, Executive Director of Pine Rest. With today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, President of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So good morning, everyone, um, on a very chilly March Saturday. And um, we're experiencing just a little bit of technical difficulty. We're trying to get our guest, Bob uh, Vanderpool, on the line. He is trying to get in, but these things do happen occasionally. And I want to let you know that um, I'm going to be flying solo today because uh, Delilah is a bit under the weather, unfortunately, but she's kind enough to help us out for just a few minutes. And, Thanks, um, Donna. I, I do believe Bob is on, on the line now. Are you there, Bob? Hello, Bob? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. All right. Well, you're good to go then. Thanks so much. Okay, very good. Um, Delilah, please do feel better. Um, uh, it's it's terrible when you've got a lot to do and and you're you're suddenly under the weather with the, a lot of activities uh, coming up next week. But I'm sure she's going to be on the mend. So Bob, um, in just one minute, just want to uh, make an announcement and then we will we are good to go. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you, and it's a pleasure to have you on and be part of the Shattered Lives um, family of shows. Um. Just wanted to let let people um, uh, be aware of a couple things. Um, I'm going to be in Myrtle Beach uh, on Monday, and I'm lucky enough to do two psychology uh, uh, classes at Coastal Carolina University talking about homicide and my book. So uh, stay tuned for that. And then we are going to the Q Center for Missing Persons Conference in Wilmington, North Carolina, and that is um, that's promising to be a wonderful conference um, with a lot of different activities. As people know, it's it's geared toward um, coordinators' education, and then we're into a lively couple of days with many different um, very learned um, presenters, as well as a um, a wonderful um, vigil, candlelight vigil down by the Wilmington River with Wall of Remembrance, and um, just an opportunity for many people to learn and uh, families to get together and to get support. Just to give you a little bit of a preview in terms of the different topics we're having, uh, we um, and I'm looking here on the website, and thank you, Delilah, for doing such a good job with helping Monica with regard to the presenters. We're having an um, Horry County uh police officer with regard to identifying a crime scene and when crime scenes actually um, begin. Um, Norma Peterson is going to come on and talk about the evidentiary abuse affidavit and the background with regard to uh, the tragedy of their family um, and and what they went through uh, with her sister being killed. We also are going to be having... um, Thomas Hargrove, who is the founder of a nonprofit uh, called Murder Accountability Project that talks about 
um, tracking the many, many unsolved homicides in this country, and I think we're going to be very surprised at that. We're also going to be having a speaker having to do with the lost and uh, and runaways, um, and we're also going to be having a um, speaker who is a retired FBI agent who has also worked in human trafficking uh, and uh, a survivor of uh, sexual trauma and sexual assault, trafficking and advocate and speaker. And lastly, um, a uh, local person who is uh, uh, going to be talking about our homeless, our homeless kids, uh, who is, uh, manages a street outreach center uh, for that population. So a uh, very varied um, menu of, of, of speakers and topics. So with that, I urge everyone to go to um, ncmissingpersons.org and register. Yes, there's still time. So um, thank you for bearing with me with that, but it's very, very important to many of us. And thank you, Bob, for um, being patient with me. Um, so um, I, I also just want to say as a precursor to our show today, thank you very much to Felix Nader, uh, consultant in um, workplace violence, because he was um, kind enough to do two shows with me as well as connect with me with some, some um other experts in this area, and that is the reason why Bob is on today, and I'm so happy to have him, because there are many layers to this topic of workplace violence, and we're going to be talking about um, the aspect of what does a boss, what does a business manager have to do in terms of leading once a workplace violence um, uh, event occurs, as well as how do we deal with the personal, emotional aspects, whether it's a huge event such as 9-11 or a small company? And I think none of us are quite prepared, so maybe we can take this information back to our workplaces and maybe um, our managers will be approach, approachable with some of this stuff. So with that said, Bobby and Nepal, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, good crisis leadership always has a plan and has a backup plan. So for some reason, I couldn't dial in from home. I jumped into my car and drove about three miles. And uh, so I'm sitting in my car in a parking lot, and the call went through. So hooray. Um, always oh. have a plan. You may not get to use it, but always have a plan. Let's go. Absolutely. So I hope I hope it's not too cold while you're sitting in your car, but it sounds like you're a trooper. Well, before we get into our, our topic in earnest, I just want to um you to you talk a little bit about, about your background. I know you're executive director of uh, of Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. And um what what is your what is your background and how did you develop Pine Rest? Okay, well, Pine, actually, uh, Pine Rest has been around for 110 years, so I can't take credit for developing it. Um, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on, there are some days when I feel that old, but I'm not. Um, you know, Pine Rest is one of the largest freestanding psychiatric hospitals in the country, um, and so it does really important work every single day um, in inpatient, residential, and outpatient services for people. Um, including people who've been victimized by violence and crime. But uh, I know my connection with Felix Nader is through our shared involvement in the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And uh, Pine Rest, where I work, you know, admits dozens of people each day who are at risk of harming themselves. Um, I think it's tied to uh, our topic today is that those who are at risk to harm themselves are also at increased risk oftentimes to harm others. And so often don't you hear about it being a, a homicide suicide or it being an act of terrorism in which somebody was willing to die in order to make a statement. Um, my, my involvement is largely uh, in, in our topic is uh, tied to providing critical incident response services. So I used to be president of the largest company in the world that did the service after workplace tragedies. So when you heard trauma counselors were available on site for the surviving employees 
that was us well over a thousand times per month, um, whether it was bank robberies or shootings or other workplace tragedies. I still do a lot of that work, and uh, it's very hard work, but very, very meaningful work to be there for people on the worst day of their life. Wow. Um, So, yeah, I was going to ask you about the scope, and I know you incorporate uh, Christianity in there. How how do you have a marriage between the employee assistance and faith-based work? Is is that true? Um, Yeah, we do. You know, what we serve, we serve the world. And so, um, you know, how do you integrate your faith into your practice? I think we all do it. We all integrate our worldview into our practice, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether it's a a faith or another philosophy of life. So I think for us, it's a a Christian worldview without apology, but also um, with lots of flexibility and respect for the fact that other people come from different world worldviews. You know, being there for somebody immediately after a tragedy um, is not the time to attempt to make a sales pitch or an evangelistic pitch. Um, right then you need to respond to them with with love and generosity and integrity and respect where they come from. Um, and if you do that well, I think you can live out your mission. Um, yeah, that sounds very well-rounded, and you sound very all-inclusive, so I think, you know, I, I think that's the key, and that's the key to trust and, 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 and um, you know, better response in these crisis kinds of situations. Um, what, what would be the biggest fallacies maybe that you've encountered regarding the, the public's perception of workplace violence in, in, in general, and, and then maybe it's in specific to the managerial aspect that we're going to get delve into more deeply. Okay. Hmm. There, there are many. Um, some just relate to the different types of workplace violence. You know, sometimes it's, uh, it's crime um, in intent. You know, there are 16 bank robberies in the United States every single day. Um, we used to serve one retailer that had many, many, many locations that got robbed over three single, three times every single day. Um, so oftentimes that is one, one motivation behind the crime. Um, another very frequent form of workplace violence has to do with um, domestic violence that happens at work. And so if a couple is estranged, whether they're married or partners in any other way, um, perhaps the most ready means of access is through work because the perpetrator knows when and where the person will be. Um, and then there's also other kinds of uh, manager-directed um, violence is frequent, especially during times of downsizings and at-risk terminations, but um, even just during conflicts within the workplace. So there there are a variety of ways that it happens. It's not always the one that's on CNN um, headline news. There are large-scale events and small ones. I think one of the fallacies that uh, managers often have, uh, first is it can't happen here. We all can operate with that bubble of denial. And the second is, okay, we need to focus on infrastructure issues. So we need to focus on IT and trucking and power and water and all of those kind of things, instead of focusing on, you know, you have the to human take care element. of your people. The yeah. human element. You have to take care of your people. It doesn't matter if everything else is working. If your people are crying, yelling, giggling, million-mile stare, absent, um, you know, fragmenting, you have to take care of people. Yeah, that's very hard. You know, I, I'll use myself as an example. For the last seven, 17 years, I've worked for state government. And that can be a very structured environment. So I'm wondering, you know, down the line, I wanted to say, well, maybe I could take some of these things and approach our, you know, immediate manager under our umbrella agency that I work for. And to me, it's just, it's just not possible because state government, as is federal, is so bureaucratic. Is it? Is it easier to make changes where where you see um, it, changes are needed with respect to 
you know, middle management or whoever when it comes to like smaller companies in the private sector versus governmental agencies? Hmm, I think so. You know, so often everybody believes it's not going to happen here until it does. And then there tends to be a small window of opportunity where it's front and center for everybody and they focus on it like crazy. And then you need some champions who carry it forward over time. But I think so. You know, um, I think small organizations are more likely to have stronger personal relationships between the tiers of management and, you know, to uh, be focused upon the people side, the human side to a greater degree. Mm-hmm. But one of the dangers is that if you're a small organization, it's even easier to assume it's not going to happen here. <laughs> just because uh, I'm one little blip on the screen. Why would it happen here? But it does. Right. Maybe easier to – I can think of many examples in my own home state here where, you know, people have infiltrated because there's not as many procedures, uh, you know, someone going in. I can think of one one workplace violence at a beer distributor where the guy was let back in to, to pick up his lunch bag and then that's when he did did the deed and shot all these people. So, you know, those those sort of small companies where they don't have as many procedures, I mean, does, that probably enters into it too. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. You know, larger organizations are more likely to have professional security and security procedures. Um, you know, you have badge in uh, procedures right. before you get in anywhere. Whereas if it's, a mom and pop or a mid-sized company, um, there's people operate out of more of a sense of trust or why would we be the target? Um, and so there's not a hardening of the target like happens in larger organizations. So both can be, both can be vulnerable for different reasons. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like it. Um, when you, when you um, have, you know, are assigned to a new incident, um, shall we say. I, I'm just wondering initially, at what point um, does the manager, you know, the, the, the manager on site, uh, when does their responsibility occur, occur in terms of when they need to implement their action plan? Is it when the employees are all safeguarded or when the crime scene is secured or when the emergency management people are done or, you know, when when is it, I know you probably, well, you can explain better than, than, than I'm trying to ask it. I'm sorry. Um, when you come in, can you kind of take the scenario and then you you would train the um, immediate managers about about what to do? Yeah. You know, ideally, I, ideally this all happened before the incident occurred. And, right. Um, okay. You know, some, some, uh, some protocols were established. Uh, first and foremost, to prevent this from occurring, but even when it does occur. So hopefully there's a pre-existent relationship between the leadership of the organization and either their employee assistance program or a crisis response organization so that they know how to move forward. But when when the crisis responder um, arrives on site, um, their first job is to consult with the leadership. You know, it's not just to immediately uh, – these are often mental health clinicians – um, their first job is not to clinish. <laughs> their first job is to okay. consult. And so they need to meet with the leadership and to talk about how do we shape this case? How do we shape our messaging? How do we shape, how do we identify the circles of impact so that we respond with different types of interventions per the needs of that group or the needs of the individuals? And so that kind of consultation is really important. And also it's helping that leader to step forward and to communicate with both competence and compassion at the same time. That's hard to, even when you're not under the influence of traumatic stress, but when stressed, people tend to become caricatures of themselves and become even more of what they already are. Think back to your last family reunion. People become more of what they already are when they're anxious. And so to coach leaders on how do you communicate in a way that says, one, I know what I'm doing, and two, I really care about you, and uh, to do that at the same time. Um, and then the consultant goes in and starts to work with managers and with teams to give people a chance to walk through a clinical process 
um, a briefing where they can talk about it or not have the reactions normalized because otherwise you become afraid of your own fight flight freeze symptoms and then to real quickly move into what are some recovery strategies that have been helpful to other people in similar situations and how do we apply that to your own personal resilience plan is this um, just with the management team or with other employees bob yes and yes yes and yes <laughs> yes i've i've never met a manager who wasn't human and uh and so they also, um, you know, this is a really tough, impactful thing for the managers too. And, yeah. and when, when the rest of the organization is impacted, they look to leadership. So, Donna, think about, you know, you're in Connecticut, so you have snow there. So you're driving the family minivan. You hit black ice, do a little skid. The kids have been fighting in the back of the van, but they stop and they look and see how you react. And if you panic, so do they. If you fake it until you make it and pull, drive the rest of the way home calmly and say, wow, that was scary, but we're going to be okay. And then you pull into the garage, they run inside, and then you fall apart. In organizations, people do the same thing. Under stress, we regress. And so people will look to leadership and take their cue. Um, very directly, the very same way. So you need to make sure that management is feeling healthy and safe and confident enough to be able to lead well also. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like you say, you're hoping that you're, you're, you've already given, um, you know, proactive training before this incident. You can't, you can't really teach all this like on the fly in the acute stages, right? Um, not as well but you as much as possible so that they can do it. We, we are a very resilient species. Um, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And um, people become heroes. And not everybody, not everybody. And the training is certainly, certainly helpful ahead of time. But uh, with some coaching and support, you will see people do things that shock themselves as mm-hmm. they lead. Yeah. Um. Do you want to give us an example just to kind of paint that picture, like somebody that you wouldn't have thought would step up to the plate? You know, um, preserving confidentiality carefully. Okay. I mean, just in general. general. Yep, yep, I sure can. Is a general example? Yep. There was a very large-scale event that occurred that we all followed and were horrified by, and there was an organization that was deeply involved and had hundreds of employees engaged as, as, uh, as volunteers in, uh, and supporting a major initiative and something horrific happened and the leader was new and the leader was brilliant, but not necessarily, um, a people person. And -hmm. the leader himself was impacted by the event. And, uh, that leader now needed to address his organization and needed to do so in a way that was both competent and compassionate. His natural tendency was to be extremely competent. And even though he cared about people, under the impact of traumatic stress, his initial reaction was to stand rigidly with a strident voice and to talk about protocols and spreadsheets. And so it was very important to come alongside that person and say, you know, I know you care about people, but you're not communicating it. People are going to look at you and say, Yep, he knows his stuff, but he's a jerk. I'm not following him. I don't trust him. And so, fortunately, that person was very coachable and open to uh, feedback and was able to communicate what really was in his heart rather than what was going to come out of an impacted self. And he did a great job. And I think it really helped people. So recover. you can actually just pull somebody aside and give them, you know, some inspiring um, you know, you, you can coach them with some encouragement and they can find it within themselves, even though they might be kind of a buttoned down academic kind of a person, um, they will rise to the occasion. Well, some will, some will. <laughs> you know, you can, you can also, you can have the other side too, Donna, you can have somebody who uh, by nature is more um, compassionate and right. but they're in and they're in leadership and now the impact of the stress makes them a caricature of themselves and they blubber. 
And whereas it's okay to share that you're impacted as well and to present a feeling person, um, those following that leader would look and say, wow, um, nice that he or she cares, but how do you follow a puddle? And yeah. young people, people are afraid. They need both competence and compassion, not either or. So both can be bolstered and some don't. Um, the biggest mistake that leaders make is to that, that I see is to deny, minimize, make excuses, project blame, um, become invisible. Nothing diminishes trust more than you just had a tragedy happen. You're feeling immensely threatened, and those in leadership um, duck it. That's that's one of the biggest mistakes I see leaders make. Mm-hmm. Well, don't they? I mean, in people that I can think of, um, just in general, because I've, I've worked in a lot of different places, perhaps that leader feels as if this happened and it's going to come down on me because I'm responsible and I don't want that, I don't need that, so therefore, you know, even if they had no control over the situation and had whatever safeguards they use, but I'm the person at the top and this is coming down on me and they want to avoid that at all costs. So is, is that common? It very, very much is, very much is, taking it too personally, and, and that's a risk we all run. You know, we we tend to derive a lot of our identity from the organizations we serve, especially if we lead them. And so we don't want to accept it. But, man, I have seen when, when you talk about tragedies leading to additional tragedies, I've seen that happen more in situations where leaders don't acknowledge what really happened. And that doesn't mean that they acknowledge that it was their fault if it wasn't. It, you know, it means being truthful and saying, I acknowledge. In fact, um, a, a communication process that I recommend, and this was something that we developed at uh, my former company mm-hmm. that we've trained a lot of leaders in. I just want to walk you through it quickly if I can. Sure. Um, and it's, it's A-C-T. Yeah. And the, the first part is acknowledge. And so if I'm a business leader, and if this is a stand-up speech to hundreds, if this is a sit-down interactive meeting with my work team of 10, um, or if this is one of those awkward conversations in the hallway or the men's or ladies' room, this process works. So let's, let's pretend that um, you're the leader of an organization, and one of your staff members was murdered at home in a domestic violence situation, okay? Tragic situation, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, It's really important for that leader, first and foremost, to acknowledge and to use the real words, not to duck it in any way, but to be able to say, team, I am so sorry. This is a tragic day in the life of Smith & Jones Industries, Yesterday, our coworker Sharon Johnson was murdered by her husband. Sharon died. I am so sorry. So right there, I acknowledge I demonstrated strength because I used Sharon's name. I used murdered. I used the word death. We can I duck statement all of those. too, right? Is that, I did. Is that important? I owned it. Yes, it is. It is. Right. And then, and then I want to acknowledge in a way that acknowledges, that acknowledges the impact on people without having to make them all the same. And so I'm going to say something. I am so sorry for how this impacts you. Some of you I know were very close to Sharon and you were friends outside of work and did things socially. Some of you didn't know her as well because you didn't work with her closely, and maybe some of you didn't like her. That's okay. It still impacts all of us because we work here. So I built some community. I built some community. We're together as Smith & Jones Industry, but we don't have to all be identical. We can be diverse. Mm -hmm. And then I want you to know, without making it all about me and without being overly dramatic, that I'm within your circle also as your leader. And so very briefly, I'm going to say, this is a tough one for me, too. I remember the day Sharon started and how proud she was of her work on the LMNOP project. This is tough. 
So by acknowledging it, I'm sending the message, I'm tough enough to handle it. I care. I believe you're tough enough to handle it. And we are together as community in this regardless. And then the C is to communicate because people need information. When a threat strikes us, we all go into fight, flight, freeze. We're all, even, even though we weren't at risk, when death happens near us, our body and our brains and our body chemistry kick in as though we were at risk. And so if you think about a deer during hunting season, its eyes are big, its ears are up, its nostrils are flared. Why? Because it needs information. People need information. They need a chance. So you share what you know at this time. So mm-hmm. you would share that Sharon's family has, is in the process of being notified. You share what you know for sure. You share if you know that the husband was arrested. You share that the children are being taken care of if you know that. But only share what you know for sure. Don't guess or conjecture, but share that kind of information. Mm-hmm. And but you is also that share considered what... confidential? I mean, it, you know, I, or is that it, does it have to be like out in the media for the manager to say, you know, as reported or something, or if people really want yeah. to know, can you can you share it? Good point. Share what share what's public knowledge and share what you know for sure. Okay. Um, on it from an external perspective, <clears throat> and it's it, I like your language of it's reported because you never know the immediate news isn't always correct. You know, right. the immediate news isn't always correct. And so you share, this is what we know at this time. And it's important to use that. And people will ask questions. When people are in shock, this isn't very complimentary of us as humans, but when people are in shock, oftentimes our brains immediately go to what's in it for me? How does this impact me? What about me? And we, be, we go into our own survival mode. And so people will ask questions, not necessarily intelligent questions but linear black and white questions. And so it's really important not to guess or conjecture, but to share what you know for sure. And then you can share what you know internally as well. You know, Sharon's coworkers have been especially um, impacted by this, the people on her team, and this is how they're being informed, including those who are on vacation. Um, Those kind of internal things you can share. And then the T and the, and the hard part of that is to do it with both competence and compassion um, and to share the information that you can. And then the T is to transition to a future focus. Never should these conversations end with, uh, well, that was interesting, but now what? And the yeah. transition needs to be, what do we do today? Does the business stay open? How do we stay open? How do we cover for the assignments that Sharon was supposed to do today? What if I just can't work today? How do I, who do I talk to? Um, it's, it's wise to encourage people to continue to function as best they can in situations like this where you're helpless because everybody would save Sharon's life if they could, but we couldn't. It's common for this acute powerlessness to become generalized and people to focus on what they cannot do rather than what they can. So if you fall off a horse, get back on a pony as quick as possible. And so it's good to encourage people, okay, we will continue today. If you cannot, we understand, talk to your manager and there's supports available for you. If you can and you're feeling as though you're not going to be at your best, we're going to try to help you to work doing things where a mistake would not be expensive or dangerous and to help people transition forward. At that point, that's often where we would encourage the leader to bring our consultant in to talk with people about, okay, so sorry about what happened, and acknowledge it, and then move into this is how events like this often impact people so that people don't become alarmed regarding their fight-flight-freeze reactions. And here are some steps that have been helpful to others who have been through something similar. Mm-hmm. So that people get a sense of self-care and here's how teams have helped themselves through situations like this. This is how you have each other's back today. And these are the supports and the resources that are available through through the on-site grief counselors or your EAP or your healthcare. Um, and then also just doing some assessment about is there anybody here who's really vulnerable for self-harm or other harm and doing that kind of assessing and knowing how to manage that as well. Wow, that's, so that's really good and really practical. 
Uh, how long does this, this ACT process, I mean, is, and is something that they do like every, once a day in the acute phases and, and constantly be reassessing the situation and honing it and refining it? Yes, yes, because, you know, you know how this goes. Information uh, unravels in stages often, and mm-hmm. it's also true that in the immediate aftermath, Nobody's very terribly uh, focused or smart, and a lot of what you say is going to go right over people, so repetition is good. Um, and as new information becomes available, yes, but the same process works throughout time. Mm-hmm. It's also true that that same process works well in external communication. So when the media shows up or when customers or shareholders or you know, other stakeholders show up, um, that process can be helpful in sharing with them just with different content. I see. Um, well, also, do you find um, because of human nature, I mean, we all have people that we get along with really well, There's and some people, you know, um, somewhat well because we have to, and then other people we don't like. And then, but we're thrown together every day and we have to make it work. So then there's this incident. Do you find that as a result of this, maybe the the bad feelings go away and there is another level where regardless of who it is that they can somehow, you know, they can all relate to this because this has happened to us as a group and things may be better with their interpersonal relationships afterwards once they get over this acute acute phase of it? That's the ideal, Um, Donna. Sometimes that happens. It's wonderful when it does. Um, But we both know of situations where that's where the wheels really fell off. And that's, that's my pitch to leadership, you know, change people and it's going to change their teams and there are times when people are led well and pulled together and they begin to band in a new sense of community and team and focus on safety and focus on quality and efficiency and then there are times where they're at each other's throats Um, and this is a tremendous you know it's a crisis it's both opportunity and threat I think a lot of it comes down to what was the culture of this team beforehand? Did they trust each other? Um, Even if they didn't like each other, did they trust each other in their leadership? And then I think it comes down to how well they're led in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What is, what is the role of before and after? I mean, I think we have a general sense, but you know, the employee assistance, I mean, we, we all have it. It's offered to us in some situations. If there's something volatile, it may someone may have to go, you know, as a mandatory condition of employment to go see EAP for whatever it is the problem is. But when this happens, I mean, are are they are they part of the aftermath and in there? Is that where they get the mental health counselors or, or whatever, or is that kind of an adjunct to th- these other resources? Yes and yes. Um, In my former company, uh, many, many EAPs outsourced crisis response to us. And so we would be all of these different EAPs every day as we responded. Um, And then uh, now I lead an organization called PAX Crisis Response. And we're part of the EAP offering that my organization provides and also can be purchased separately. But, you know, it's, again, a lot of a lot of uh, the success of a response after a tragedy depends upon, you know, how, how, what was the culture before? And is this an organization that encourages EAP and that, um, that supports help-seeking behavior, or is it one that shames help-seeking behavior? You know, when they look at, when they look at, uh, who bounces back after a tragedy? So let's say that a tragedy happened today to Bob, March 11, and dear Lord, please no. But if they, if a tragedy happened to me today, March 11, and people were to now uh, put it together a prognosis, what's Bob going to be like three months from now? One of the best predictors of my resilience is 
how healthy was I before? <laughs> how right. did I deal with stress and anger and fear and frustration and conflict? And if I had healthy life-giving ways of dealing with it before the incident, I'm more likely to bounce back regardless of the tragedy. It's, it's sort of like if you have a knee injury, your prognosis is based upon how healthy was this leg before the injury occurred. And the same is true of cultures, whether it's of a family or a work group or a community. Is it okay? Is asking for help seen as a sign of weakness or is it a sign of intelligence and strength? So companies that encourage use of the EAP for all of life stressors, not just the big ones, um, tend to be more resilient. And companies that have a culture where they support each other through all of life's stressors tend to be more resilient than those that are more individualized in focus. Yeah, that. It, but then it, it still comes down, doesn't it, because I'm thinking of all the homicide survivors I know or pe- people involved in missing persons or, or um, you know, domestic violence, whatever. It comes down to the individual in terms of their own makeup and their resiliency. Again, I'll use myself as an example, having 59 surgeries over my life and then wow. having a homicide coming out of graduate school. And I've always been very healthy. I just had to have a bunch of surgeries for two different issues. And so I would say I'm very resilient, um, you know, having had all that. But there are those people that the same exact thing could happen to, and they just couldn't tolerate or compensate or whatever it is like me because they don't have my genetics, my environment, my whatever. Um, is, is that true? Does it come down to the individual in terms of resiliency? You know, um, there's a lot of research about who bounces back and who doesn't. Yeah. And uh, the same, and it's not about the incident, it's about the impact because the exact same thing can happen to 10 people with 10 different reactions. That, that used to amaze me. Um, it still does. I, I go out to uh, a team that's just been robbed at a bank, and I'll have one person curling in fetal position, one person crying, one giggling, one yelling at everybody, and one who wants to go to the mall. So wow. the research, and, and, yeah, and, and then <laughs> if you come back two days later, everybody's playing a different role, you know? Um, but but it's about the impact. And so they've researched who's going to remain stuck as a victim, who is going to constantly be looking back at that event and defining themselves by it, kind of like driving through life, looking through the rearview mirror and park, and mm-hmm. who's going to be a survivor. And, you know, Don, it sounds like you're a survivor, not a victim. And I doesn't it sound am. different when somebody says, I'm a survivor of all those surgeries, I'm a survivor of a of a yeah. homicide. I'm a survivor well, of cancer. I'm a survivor of Afghanistan. I'm a survivor but then of you're, you can They're become a thriver, Bob. A sur-thriver. Victim, yes. victim, survivor, thriver. I have a, a special yes. blog that I wrote about. So, yeah, you can, you can thrive, you know, and, and do positive things in the aftermath as a result of those things. And I think that's what I have achieved. And I don't know how unusual that is, but I, you know, I would much rather have my my dad back here with me, but it didn't happen, or I wish I didn't have to go through all of that as as a mostly a child, but but I had to. So, you know, but you take what what has happened to you, and I've learned over the course of these several years, especially with the things I'm involved with now, that you can make something really good out of something really bad. Yes, you can, and uh, thank God for you. Thank you know thank it's you. Uh, it's called it's called post traumatic growth. And yeah. um, when they when they look at the people who move on and who bounce back and especially get better, there there are three things that they find that mm-hmm. differentiate them. And one of them is what I already talked about, which was the pre existent presence of healthy coping skills. You know, so do you do what Grandma taught you? Do you do you pray? Do you exercise? Do you eat healthy? Do you get some sleep? Do you talk to nice people? Do you have good stress management, or do you run straight to Jack Daniels and Jerry Springer? And the second, <laughs> okay, the second is they find that that me, me, me. It's all about me. Lots of drama about me. People are not resilient because you come to the end of self really quick. They find that people who believe in and are committed to a cause 
greater than themselves are more likely to bounce back. So mission-driven people, and that Good can be point. their faith. It can be I'm going to keep kids safe. It can be my profession. It can be providing for my family. It can be patriotism. It can be your faith integrated within all those things. But when life is hitting you full force in the face, you need to rise above it and say, why am I doing it? What's the why behind my what? Don't focus on what. Focus on the why behind your what. And then the third character, so that's important. So mission-driven, pre-existent, healthy coping strategies. And then the other one is they find that that loners tend not to be as resilient as people that have social support. And that doesn't mean you have to be a party animal and have a million friends on Facebook. It just means you have some people that care about you, that care about you enough to give you attaboys and attagirls as well as to risk ticking you off and give you feedback, even if it's not comfortable. And we are created as social people, and we do best when we're part of a pack. And it's like Rudyard Kipling said, you know, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf gives the pack. So resilient people make up resilient organizations and companies and families, and we also draw a lot of strength from our pack that makes us more resilient. Uh, Absolutely, and I think just um, I've had to make surrogate families out of, the, you know, for me, the different organizations that I am affiliated with. I'm I'm a single professional, don't have kids, don't have a, a, a partner. Um, but also, isn't this, I mean, maybe you've encountered this too, I know, it's very common among families of homicide and, and others that we, you know, we all cope and grieve in a, in a different way and your other family members may have no interest if you're the one that's becoming the advocate and helping other people and they just want to forget about it and they don't care about what you're doing. And, you know, and I don't say that to be mean. I say that to be realistic. That's the situation with my family. So I've, I've had to foster other, you know, other surrogate family members because unfortunately they, I mean, they're aware of it, but they just have no interest. So that's a hard that's a hard thing too. It is. You know, we we heal ways and at different paces. And you know, there are statistics about the the future of marriages that lose a child to death and it's it's a very it's a very gruesome statistic, largely because the the two partners may grieve in very different ways and, and at different paces. And it's so important in situations like this to realize that as powerful as this is for me and how I heal, it's different for different people. And we need to offer each other a lot of grace, cut a lot of slack, find where we do have commonalities, and then also find other people who will jump on the mission in a similar way that we do and uh, move forward with them. But it, it may not be those with whom we share DNA. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a good point. We have to keep telling people, especially those new people that enter the world, enter the club of violence that they don't want to belong to, just like, you know, us. So that that is so true. Um, Just letting you know, we have about 12 minutes left to our show. It's going fast. Well, we're going to have to have you back if you would like to in the future because there's so much to cover. And I'm I'm really enjoying this this uh you know this topic and and what we're covering um but with regard to um you know the, the you have this tapestry of um employees is there a certain percentage or that uh, when this event happened they will never return to that workplace no matter if they have counseling or whatever it is, is there like, you know, 10% of your workforce are not going to come back no matter what you do? Um, You know, there are folks that won't. Um, It's not nearly that high though. It's not nearly that high. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's again, preserving confidentiality, but um, I have um, a favorite customer and I know, I know I'm not supposed to have one, but have a favorite customer. (laughs) And this was a retailer that gets robbed a lot. Okay, uh-huh. and it's part of it's part of their mission to uh, to deal with cash and to be in in neighborhoods perhaps that are higher crime, but they get robbed multiple times per day, and they um, 
when they approached us about supporting them in this, they said, you know, our folks are, are minimum wage. And right. um, when, when they get robbed, right now almost half of them can't come back to work. And when they can't come back to work, it means the lights get turned off, they get evicted, they live in their van. You know, they have to go find another job, and it's it's a huge mm-hmm. thing for them. And this company, you know, found it to be immensely expensive as well with the constant churn of employees because they were losing five or six employees a day because of this. And so we, we initiated uh, a crisis response program for them that just did just did the ACT with a lot of compassion immediately. And within a year – we were able to increase employee retention after robberies from 50% to 84%. And wow. in two years, it was up to 91% of employees that stayed. And uh, in fact, um, very unofficially, the vice president of risk management and I discovered that they had better employee retention amongst those who had been robbed than those who had not, um, which gave me a lot of chuckles. And I think a big piece of it was just that the leadership immediately on the worst day of their life reached out with compassion. And so they got a call and said, hi, my name is Bob. I'm part of your crisis response team. We call after robberies. I understand you just had one. I'm so, so sorry. And we gave them a chance to talk if they wanted to. And we normalized the reactions. You know, they may have thrown up. They may have wet their pants. They maybe couldn't sleep. They may be too shaky to drive home. They may have been crying, screaming, yelling, giggling. And it's that's scary when you experience those. And so we normalized those reactions. And then we talked about things that were helpful to other people who had been robbed as part of their own self-care and their team care. And we talked about how do you get through the next 24 hours and how do you come back for your next shift? What are some things that would help you to feel safer? And it was amazing, the reaction, the incredible uh, change in those who could come back to work. Well, is that just a phone call or a personal visit? Or, you know, if they need more, you call them back or whatever? You know, it was both. Um, We had certain uh, red flags where we had somebody on site. But this was a a retailer that usually would have two people in the store. And Uh so um, it didn't work. You know, it didn't make sense to send somebody out to do a group of two. But the telephone call was the majority of our response. But just being connected to somebody who cared about you made a huge difference. You know, Donna, we we can both... You know, without without starting group therapy here, you, me, and everybody <laughs> on the call um, on this podcast has had a worst day of our life, and uh, I hope it continues to be the worst day of our life, and we don't have a worse one. But we will remember somebody who reached out and with competence and compassion was there for us. We will remember people who tried but botched it. And we will also, and this one's really painful, we will remember those who should have been there but weren't. And, yeah. But we will never forget when somebody came alongside us, was tough enough to let us be whatever we needed to be, and helped us move through it. And uh, that's a tremendous honor and a tremendous responsibility. Well, that's, yeah, that's very valuable, you know, because that, that will stick out in your mind no matter what the – no matter what the trauma is. Are some of these um, uh, incidents in terms of the robberies or whatnot, do they get, I know you said some people have to, you know, they can't pay the rent, they have to live in their van, victim compensation monies. I mean, is there help? Is it, I mean, if, if it's a bigger company, is any of this covered by any kind of insurance where they could help, it would help employees to get back to a baseline? You know, I think that um, that's probably different company by company and state by state in terms mm-hmm. of and uh, insurance policy per insurance policy. I know. Or victim uh, compensation. Yes, yes. So I I think it's probably different wherever you are and whatever your scenario is. But but is that you know, something you advise them to 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 look into um, those yes. resources? For people because it impacts their family. We didn't get to talk too much about, you know, the personal impact of family. So maybe if if you wouldn't mind considering maybe down the line we could do another show, you know. 
Donna, have I ever said no to you? <laughs> well, I haven't known you that long, but I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> so be glad hopefully you are. Hopefully not. If I'm if I'm if I'm sufficiently charming, you you will say yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I, I I think I think that's great. Now you had mentioned, um, you know, we still have about six minutes, I believe. Um, you you do this, and is there there's like a core curriculum, so companies, um, agencies can you know purchase your services for this is what we need and this is what we need or, or whatever. And how does somebody go through that process? And and can you give us some contact information if people are listening to this because it's going to be on the archives forever? And I will repeat it. How can they get help? from your company or company like you, or if you can refer to other people in other regions. Because I didn't think we said you're in the Detroit, Michigan area, correct? Um, the other side of the state, Grand Rapids, Michigan. The, oh, uh, Grand Rapids, the west, okay. The west side, yep. Okay, but how large an area do you cover in terms of helping people? Um, nationwide. Nationwide. Um, nationwide okay. for in terms of crisis uh, response and consultation and training. Um, and sometimes that's on site. I do have a network across the nation of people on site. And nowadays with technology, we do a fair amount of it also through video live feed as well as telephonically um, in terms of training, consultation, and in that kind of support. Um, you can reach me at 616 258 755 Four, eight. And um, my email address, sorry, I have a yeah. Dutch last name. It's hard to spell, but B-O-B yep. dot V as in Victor, A, N as in Nancy, D as in David, E, P as in Paul, O-L at Pinerest, P-I-N-E-R-E-S-T dot O-R-G. Yeah, well, that's that's great information to have, and we'll, we'll be sure to put it up in in in, in our post again. And um, just wondering, I, I like to ask a lot of our guests um, with regard to our audience, which is pretty varied. Um, what what message w- um, would you like to convey in terms of what what to take away from this? What is the most important thing to remember, especially if they want to use some of this information for their own good? I think the biggest thing, and, and you prompted this, was always focus on the human factor. You know, violence and crime break all the rules. It's, it's breaks all the rules. It's everything that our grandmothers taught us from the time we we're toddlers not to do, in terms of how to how to share, how to resolve conflicts. And so when it happens, it shakes everything up, and especially it shakes things up if it happens in a place where this isn't supposed to happen. And you need to provide that strength and stability for people while they have a chance to recover. They need to be healthy, safe, trust those in leadership, and be rewarded for sticking around. Well, that's that's a tall order for sure. Tell us a little bit more about the uh, about the uh, coalition that you're in in with Felix, and I believe we're going to have Sally Carson on. Um, in April, who sounds like a, a really proactive, a, 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 a really neat person to have on. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, we're, we're part of uh, the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And this is a very large organization based out of D.C. And our specific um, task, we're part of the Workplace Task Force. Um, and recognizing the fact that the workplace could be a resource very leverageable to prevent suicide. And so we're doing a lot of training in different industries for how managers can, um, you know, assess a little bit, see what the red flags are, inquire, and then refer should they have employees that are at risk for self-harm. Um, we're working especially in the construction industry these days uh, since the CDC's study came out and found construction to be the second highest um, of all industries for workplace suicide. So we're hosting summits and writing articles and doing a lot of training. 
Really? Oh, that that is that's very interesting uh, fact to hear. I, I wasn't aware. So, I will be very um, I will be very interested to hear other guests, and um, I'm putting you on a list as a repeat guest if you would so desire. So, thank you, thank you so much, Bob. We're going to have to close out this edition for today, and I wish you um, I wish you a very good weekend. And please do keep in touch with us. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Thank thank you, Bob, and thank you all my listening audience, and we'll see you on the next edition of Shattered Lives Radio. Have a safe and good weekend, and hopefully see you at the Q Conference. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.